It's Jim Paff, and welcome back to the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are the cruelest of all people because they're subjective and selfish in the way that they address society. Kind people have the interests of others in mind, but they speak truth into society. Follow us on iTunes, give us a five-star rating, and also uh, give us your review of the podcast. You can also follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting apps. Now let's get to the show. Hey, we've got a really important podcast today. I've got Adam Angievsky, the Chief Executive Officer and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. You're going to really find this informative and, frankly, fascinating. There's so many important things going on with the outrageous government spending that's happening at every level of government. We're going to dig into that today. We're going to try not to get too much into details, but you're just going to get information that is going to be really helpful to you. And OpenTheBooks.com is the world's largest private database of government spending. There's so much information there. Like I say, we're not going to dig into massive details, but we're going to talk together and expose what's going on in government. Now, Adam's an entrepreneur. Before he founded Open the Books, he co-founded Home Pages Directories. It was a $20 million publishing company. He's been all over the media, any major news source you can think of. He's been there. And the things that Open the Books does has led to grand juries, indictments, prosecutions, congressional briefings, subpoenas, and White House and executive agent po- agency policy changes. This is going to be a really important podcast, and look forward to sharing it with you. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, uh, to the Against Nice podcast. I've got Adam Angievsky on. He's the chief executive officer and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. Uh, we got hooked up recently. We've kind of known each other by reputation, but have a real opportunity to talk about serious issues that really matter. And when you get into the area of government spending, you better be on top of it. Adam is, and OpenTheBooks.com does some tremendous work. Actually, one of the very few organizations digging in as deeply as they do on this issue. Uh, Adam, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Jim, it's great to be on your your podcast here. I'm really looking forward to a robust conversation. Uh, there is a lot to talk about right now and what's going on in the country in terms of spending debt deficits and all the rest of the uh, waste, fraud, corruption, abuse, uh, enemies, foreign and domestic. No, and listen, this isn't the, the sexiest topic for a lot of people because you talk through numbers, but it is probably the most important topic that we have right now. I want to give a little background for folks to know a little bit about you as well. Um, You have over 120 uh, published investigations, 10 million page views. You've been on all over the media, whether it's, um, you know, the, the major media, Wall Street Journal, Fox News, all the cable networks, New York Times, You've been all over the place. Um, Your group, OpenTheBooks.com, again, I want everyone to go to OpenTheBooks.com. A lot of great stuff there. But your oversight model has led to the assembly of grand juries, indictments, prosecutions, congressional briefings and hearings, subpoenas, White House executive agency policy changes, congressional legislation, so much more. I mean, I was on Capitol Hill when some of this stuff was flowing out. I've seen it firsthand. It's been very effective. Um, and 
you actually ran for governor of Illinois one time, and I uh, just kind of wish you had as much money as uh, J.B. Pritzker, and you could have taken him on this last time. And who knows? We, Illinois might get set free. I don't know. But but these issues are extremely critical to every American. There's not a number we're going to talk about today that even in the – because we're going to talk about stuff at the municipal and state level. There's not a number we're going to talk about today that literally doesn't affect every American. Uh, there's that uh, uh, parable that uh, the fluttering of a butterfly uh, affects uh, weather in a big way down the line. Well, that's really true. Even when you're talking about what cities like Chicago and New York are doing, it's affecting every one of us. And right now in particular, because states and city governments are asking for and in bigger ways than ever getting bailouts. This is a serious situation, isn't it, Adam? Well, it really is. And I think, you know, Jim, look, we draw we draw inspiration from our home state. We're headquartered. OpenTheBooks.com is headquartered right here in Illinois. It is the Super Bowl of corruption. You mentioned I had run for governor. That was back in 2010. Yeah. I came within 5% of winning the race against, you know, the best and the brightest in the Illinois Republican Party, which isn't saying too much. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the uh, this one trillion dollar coronavirus bailout of the states that's being considered right now here in July of 2020 in our nation's capital, um, we've given a lot of oversight to that. I'm proud of we've taken our Illinois model of rooting out corruption and we've taken that writ large on a national basis. Yeah, and I, I can remember. In, as far back as 2010 and for some of the, the intervening years thereafter, states were asking, particular Cali particularly California, were asking for billions of dollars in bailouts. And it was absurd to think that anything like that could pass out of Congress. Now, I think we're going to have, if this $1 trillion package passes, we're going to have approaching $2 trillion of state and city and municipal bailouts this is a massive scale. I, I described, so you know that I worked for Thomas Massey. I was his uh, chief of staff, Thomas Massey from Kentucky. Yeah, exactly. He, he demanded a He's quorum. A oh, he is a real leader. He demanded a quorum on the House floor to vote for two point, the $2.3 trillion CARES Act. He literally had the entire world against him, the media, Republicans, Democrats. I mean, I've had the conversation with him. It was a massive uh, onslaught against him. And, I, and as I, I, I told him on the phone, I think only an engineer could have done this because he has the same emotions as every other person. I mean, it, it's very tough. And there are a few people who might have the same kind of courage that he had. But being the engineer and you're looking right at the Constitution, it says you must have a quorum to do business and they're just going to voice vote this thing. The engineer in him could not uh, go away from that, no matter what the emotions were. Listen, this kind of overreach that we have from the federal government right now over this coronavirus thing is it's not only just, it's not merely unprecedented in scale because it truly is. It really breaks the entire paradigm of who we are as a country and what we should be focusing on. Well, and let's let's cover what Thomas Massey did to try to to try to get everybody to own the vote. The CARES Act was what was passed out of uh, Congress unanimously. Nobody voted against it in the United no. States Senate. We were giving oversight to that as the Senate vote was going on. Nobody even had time to read a final version of the bill before they voted. 
two final, final versions of the bill hit the floor up to an hour after debate on the bill had already begun. And that was in the United States Senate. Then it comes over yeah. to the Humphrey. He described this fight with Thomas Massey. He just, very, very simply, he just wanted to get every single uh, member uh, in the House to own their vote, to put their name on the vote. And this created such an avalanche of, of cascading criticism on him. Now, in real time, on Twitter, in the days that followed, we were there, we had his back, because that he, Massey was right. That CARES Act, three, uh, $2.2 trillion worth of coronavirus, quote unquote, bailout, lots of that bailout went to people who, it was, it was, it was not even related to the coronavirus. All the money to the museums, all the money to the wealthy uh, universities, uh, the largest, we, we took a look at the 25 largest universities with the, the, the universities with the largest endowments. They've got endowments of $350 billion and they were allocated in that act nearly $1 billion of coronavirus bailout. And they can't make the argument, Jim, that they needed the money. You know, we did right. an 1800 word piece with USA Today on the wealthy hospitals with massive endowments that received uh, uh, millions of dollars worth of coronavirus bailout in that bill. So whether it was the wealthy hospitals, whether it was uh, the colleges, the universities, the museums, the, the uh, you know, the payments to unemployed people where they make more to stay home than to get a job. Uh, I mean, Massey was right at every level on that bill. It was totally loaded with pork. Yeah, it's I we need more people of courage like Thomas in Congress than we have. And we got about 20, 25 people that in various degrees are really solid and pointing out these issues on a regular basis. You know, um, I know uh, Tom Coburn was uh, on your board or and as an advisor to your organization, passed away recently. Huge loss. What a great man. How very few people. Jim DeMint, I'd throw in that, and some others uh, back in back in their day, you know, just one generation before this current crowd. We've had some people pointing this out forever, but there's been little movement because both parties are insistent upon uh, continuing the government scheme that we have. And one of the things we're going to talk about today, because we're going to go into a lot of detail, um, and, and we're, I, mean, I want to try to relate it in a big picture level so people understand, but we're going to talk about a lot of different things today that are extremely bad, but we've got two parties who from slightly, only slightly different perspectives when it comes to spending, maybe some key perspectives when it comes to things like social issues and some other things, but really it's kind of the uniparty. They, there's no perspective between the two parties about the morass of debt that we've put ourselves in, what it means, and frankly, how it makes us uh, very insecure as a nation when you consider what China's ambitions are, for example, and other countries as well. This is, how serious is this issue, Adam? What, where are we really going as a country when it comes to debt? So, uh, look, it's, you rightly call out both parties it's one party we have in this country and it's the party of let's all get rich together on the backs of the american people jim if you remember in 2016 on the presidential election cycle 
On the left, you had the socialist Bernie Sanders, and on the right, you had Donald Trump. And both of them ran on eerily similar messaging that the system is rigged and it's rigged for insiders. At OpenTheBooks.com, we show you just how rigged it is. So the only way back is for the American people to embrace their constitutional rights. And I'll take you right to Article 1, Section 9, Clause 7 of the United States Constitution. And it's where we get our charge at OpenTheBooks.com. And it states that a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. And now, Jim, today, it's the internet age. There's a simple interpretation of Article 1, Section 9. Open the books, post every dime online in real time. You know, um, by the way, one of the arguments against national security efforts of the federal government is you got to be careful because we can't let foreign people uh, that, we're, that we're working against see the exact numbers there. But I mean, you might be talking about tens of billions out of the trillions that we spend if we really did shield that. It's very easy to put the checkbook online. And one of the things, you, you may know the details about this, but as I was working on Capitol Hill, I know there was a kind of a semi-audit done of the Department of Defense, which, by the way, is a very real constitutional uh, effort of government. I mean, of the, my, by my estimate, 60 to 80 percent of, of dollars that we spend in the federal government really being unconstitutional. The Department of Defense is not unconstitutional. That's what we do. And I, at one estimate I saw was $600 billion of double accounting um, and, and or unaccounted for monies in the Department of Defense. I mean, that, that's just one agency of the dozens and dozens beyond that. This is a really serious issue. So, look, three, three quick transparency problems. One, on federal executive uh, agency salaries, there's about 1.35 million uh, bureaucrats that work in the executive agencies in the federal government. These are things like the EPA, Health and Human Services, the Department of Education, uh, the uh, Department of State, agencies that we're all familiar with. Uh, in the last year of the Obama administration, when we filed our Freedom of Information Act request for that payroll file, they redacted 3,500 uh, names and positions from that payroll file. And we were disappointed in that. And today, the Office of Personnel Management is redacting 350,000 names wow. from that wow. payroll file. And they're not even giving us the true and accurate salary and bonuses in that payroll file. Here's the second transparency problem at the federal level, and it's the pensions. You know, even our members of Congress, we elect them. This is quote unquote public service. We help fund, we guarantee, and we don't get to see their lifetime public pension when they retire. I think it's an outrage. Most, it's probably a 90, 95% issue. We should be able to see who's getting what after how long uh, when they serve in Congress. Uh, here's the third transparency problem. And it's a, it's, it's a recent one. Um, so, you know, when they disclose the Paycheck Protection Program uh, forgivable loans to small businesses, you know, our team made the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal by calling out the Hollywood elite for taking PPP loans uh, for their affiliated companies like Kanye West for his clothing and sneaker uh, brand. 
for uh, Robert Redford for his uh, Sundance uh, Festival, you know, Francis Ford Coppola for his winemaking businesses, okay? All of that money was disclosed in bands, and the bands were large, 150,000 to 350,000, 350,000 to a million, a million to two million, two to five million, five to 10 million. Why didn't we get to see the accurate number? And here's the other thing. There were hundreds of thousands of forgivable loans under 150,000, and they redacted the recipient's name. You can't give oversight to that file. No, there's no way. In fact, uh, I, when I was a chief of staff on Capitol Hill, I, the salary range I was in put me into a disclosure requirement. I filled out those disclosure forms. Those congressional co disclosure forms tell you very little about what's really going on with these people. You know, you've got the Democrats screaming and yelling because uh, Donald Trump hasn't released his tax returns. Well, these guys that are screaming and yelling, they will never allow you to uh, see the details of their finances. And we're going to get into to how a lot of uh, government officials will double dip uh, here in just a little bit. But this, th there's no way you can get a good sense for most members of Congress. Sometimes you can. By the way, folks like me that aren't these wealthy entrepreneurs that, you know, fall into the million to $25 million range, I think, on some of the things, you know, you, I'm, I don't fall into that category. Some people, it's fairly clear, but it's really a bit obscure, and it's obscure on purpose, because they don't want to know that government is a scam. I mean, at every level, it's a scam. Now, uh, I want to set this up by talking about this. There's one number that hits me all the time, and, and I'm, I'm going to give the older estimates. You may know the updated ones. But at one time, the average, uh, the, the median, excuse me, income of federal employees was somewhere around $75,000 compared to the median income of the average American in the $54,000 range. Uh, that that number bumps up when you get into the D.C. area with federal employees, where that average salary gets into the 80000 range. And by the way, that's salary. That's not total compensation. So you've got really a lot, of, and, 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 and total compensation for your average American might bump up into the 60s. But for many federal employees, on the median basis, because there are a whole bunch that make well over six figures, uh, you might see a total compensation in the 100000 range. And this is absurd. It is so skewed. And this is worse, as you point out, from your work at the state and municipal level, in many cases, than it even well, is at the federal level. Well, and at the federal level, it's really grown. So in 2016, we came out with an oversight report called Mapping the Swamp, a study of the administrative state. And we basically studied the last year of the Obama administration. And here's what we found. We found that the average pay was six figures for a federal bureaucrat. So, so Jim, it's, it's well beyond the 75,000. The average pay at the federal level on just cash compensation, that doesn't include all the different benefits, you gotta tack on about 30% for all the different benefits that come with this. If you're a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., you get a tax-free commuting allowance. Yeah. <laughs> I, by the way, I got, I got it too, Adam. I got right. that allowance too when I was using the Metro. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard not to take advantage of it. I mean, my gosh. But it's always there. The other thing that we do for Capitol Hill employees, which, by the way, 
I almost have no problem with because it's Capitol Hill employees that get paid so little. It's the federal bureaucrats that get paid outrageous amounts of money. I had many staffers who made in the 30000 sometimes less, but that twenty five to 35000 range. I didn't mind them personally getting that Metro benefit, and they all, but they also got their student loans paid for. But the, but the point of that is, and, and, and I felt fine with that for them in their specific circumstance, but the problem is that is the kind of benefit that no private company can ever give to their employees and remain in business, and the federal well, government just shoots right past that. Well, it starts at the top. So you've got Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, the respected leaders in the House and the Senate. One's a Democrat Pelosi and McConnell's the Republican, right? So we just took a look at uh, what they're going to receive if they retired after the November elections here in 2020. And it's absolutely stunning. So Nancy Pelosi, over the course of her 34-year career in Congress, she's made about $5.6 million. Uh, if she retired, she'll get a pension uh, of a federal pension plus Social Security of $153 thousand dollars a year for the rest of her life and then layered on top of that what most people don't uh, understand Jim is that members of Congress get the double dip there's also a 401k style plan that taxpayers match up to five percent of oh, yeah. the member of Congress's salary so we took a look at Pelosi uh, and McConnell McConnell's been there uh, uh, I think 36 years so we, we took a look and we inflated that taxpayer match just a hundred percent taxpayer match in this in this special retirement plan and both and if it grew by the returns of the stock market the S&P 500 over the course of this time each of their accounts just on the taxpayer match piece would be worth over one million dollars and each of them could take it as a lump sum so you know Mike Braun, uh, U.S. Senator from Indiana, he's got a bill out there that would allow future members of Congress to opt out of the public sector pension because they already have this taxpayer-backed 401k. It's a great bill. Incredibly, right now, if you're elected to Congress, you can't opt out. Yeah, that's absolutely right. By the way, I couldn't opt out as an employee either. And, and it's, it's, it's nearly as beneficial for employees there, although the, the, uh, the congressional employee salaries are really, really low. I mean, these members of Congress are cleaning up. It's not as bad as it used to be, by the way. It's actually, this largesse was actually slightly reformed uh, when Newt Gingrich came into power as, as speaker because you got an automatic full pension prior to that. They started. Well, it's, it's, also, it's also interesting, like uh, former uh, Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Uh, so at age 48, he retired, you know, as speaker and went to the private sector. Well, two years later, when he turned age 50, and that was in, I think, January or February of 2020 here, he was able to um, start drawing at age 50 an $83,000 a year pension for the rest yeah. of his life. So yeah. look, uh, that's what they always do. They always claim reform, and then we yep. have to fact check. We have to shine the white hot spotlight and see when and where we need more reforms. And we always need more reforms. I want to take a quick break right here so we can get to some of our sponsors. Do you want to get on the path to a healthy lifestyle? Go to FitNutritionDepot.com. Fit Nutrition Depot has a full range of products to help you pursue your health goals. If you need more energy or you want to lose weight, Fit Nutrition Depot has the products to help you pursue a better, healthy lifestyle. 
Beat that drop in afternoon energy. Stay alert without that sudden slump at the end of the day with liftoff. Are you trying to lose weight? Try one of our quick start programs. They can help support your goal of healthy weight management and nutrition. And our herbal aloe products can help soothe your stomach and support intestinal health. Go to www.fitnutritiondepot.com and use the code WYDE to get 15% off any order of $15 or more. Results vary. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. If you'd like to find out more, go to www.fitnutritiondepot.com. Remember to enter the code WYDE to get 15% off. Go to www.fitnutritiondepot.com now. We want to take a moment here right in the middle of the podcast just to tell you how incredibly important it is that you go to www.politicsisntnice.com as you get more information about the important things we're talking about today and uh, get other insights into different information and join our email list. There's a button right at the top right-hand portion of the webpage where you can join our email list. Also, go to facebook.com forward slash against nice. Uh, Twitter handle is against nice. You can follow us on Instagram at against nice as well. And on Parlor at against nice. Uh, all of our social media is available to you. And of course, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting apps so that you can get the podcast immediately when it comes out. And be sure to give us a five-star rating and let people know what you think about this broadcast and the others that we have there. Again, www.politicsisntnice.com. Now let's get back to the podcast. Well, so let's let's kind of set this up for people then. This is a good start to this, but we've got to understand there was a time, and I showed you this graphic just before we got uh, going on our program. We, we were at a point, thanks to the uh, uh, efforts of Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton, where we actually got to a place where we were not running deficits in the federal budget, we were actually running surpluses. And, and by the way, it, there was no way we were always going to run surpluses every year after that. But we had fine-tuned the federal budget, the, the pressure of two parties having to work together, maybe the, the one time in, in most recent history. We had the, by the way, we had this attitude. Way back, Washington warned us. Uh, uh, President Washington warned us in his farewell address about debt, and about going overboard. All, every founding father talked about it the same way. But this was the first time, maybe since the 19th century, that we actually got together and got the approach to federal spending, which was still bad in my opinion at the time, but we got to this place where we could run surpluses. So the uh, last OMB report, Office of Management and Budget Report of the Bush administration, and the first one, of the Clinton administration were projecting that we would pay off the national debt somewhere between 2011 and 2012. Then 9-11 hit and uh, the Bush administration not only took us to war, but they uh, created new government programs to create a permanent Republican majority. But all they did was create a permanent track to debt. And so there's a Wall Street Journal article in uh, 2015 called Zero National Debt. Not long ago, budget 
forecasters plan for. By the way, in those OMB reports, I mean, the OMB was wringing their hands. They're like, okay, so we have all these long-term bonds. How are we going to pay them off early? Can we really do that? They were really wor seriously worried about that in those two reports. There's interesting, if you read the details, interesting discussions. But that's where we were. And here we are in 2020, and we've got 27, almost $27 trillion of debt. It, it's so, we're, we're, we could be lost as a nation. This is the first time, except in war, when we've been over 100% of GDP in our national debt. It's, a it's actually a serious situation. And I don't know how we're going to get out of it, Adam. Can we? So back in uh, 1992, the entire national debt was $4 trillion. And this year, we will add much more than $4 trillion to the national debt in one year. And yeah. so in 1992, it was $4 trillion. At the start of the uh, George W. Bush administration, it was $5.8 trillion. At the start of the Barack Obama administration, it was like $9.9 trillion. At the start of the Donald Trump administration, it was around $19 trillion. And now we're just four years later, uh, you know, when we had a Republican House and Senate and president for the first two years, you know, people forget about that. But in 2017 and 2018, Republicans had complete control of the purse strings. Uh, and now we're going to be pushing $27 trillion worth of national debt. Yeah, it, it, I, you can't recover from that easily. It takes time to do that. You know, we, we paid did, down, we we paid down the debt after World War II. But that took a very real commitment to get that done on the part That's of Congress. Right. And the levels of debt in World War II versus now, we're, uh, we're rivaling that uh, same uh, level. On a GDP debt. basis. On a GDP yeah. basis, yeah. Without a world war. Yeah, exactly. And with tiny wars that were really expensive, by the way, too. But we're, we're not going to get into that. So, so that's our foundation right now. We are in a debt curve that is nearly exponential and is hard to get out of because of the inertia that you build into the federal government and then well, the coronavirus let's, thing let's comes. Let's even take it a step further. So we're talking about the federal uh, debt and deficit, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, the last time I looked at it was about 65,000 per man, woman, and child. It's probably 70 or 75,000 per man, woman, and child. You just have to take the total and divide it by 330 million Americans right now. And you got the, you got, how much each of us owe, but then then, then you have your, your state debt. So obviously we're headquartered in Illinois. Just the five state, so, so Illinois has about 700 pension plans. Moody's says that those pension plans are unfunded to the tune of a quarter trillion dollars. And what that means in Illinois, it's 19,000 per man, woman, and child that we owe for uh, this this long-term unfunded pension liabilities. So 76,000 for a family of four, but the average household income in Illinois is only 64,000. We owe more just in unfunded pension liabilities to the state, pen, state and local pensions than we make in an entire year. Then you layer on the, the federal debt. Now I live in a county of DuPage County the municipal debt and the county debt and the community college debt adds up to another $3.2 billion in my county. Nobody, nobody has a plan to pay any of this back. It's a crush. Government is crushing we the people. 
and and you go through city and state budgets and point out the number of people making over six figure incomes again the average american uh doesn't get anywhere near a hundred thousand dollars in income and uh and because we have so, so I, just in illinois just to point out your, you show uh, your $100,000 club. You got 35,332 teachers in the retirement system making over 100,000 in pensions. State university retirement system, over uh, 16,000. City of Chicago, 15,500. I mean, you just, you, you list this out and you list in your report in Forbes magazine on Illinois, $14 billion just in pensions. Uh, that we're paying out. I mean, it, it, you're right. It's we are so overwhelmed with government spending. I, I'm going to give you a local example because I live in Woodland Park, Colorado. I'm on the city council in Woodland Park. 8,500 people. By the way, they're, they're, I'm driving them nuts because I, I just won't put up with this crap. But 8,500 people. We have a strong city manager form of government. That city manager's total compensation is over two hundred thousand dollars. It's incredible. It, it's outrageous, but they're upset when we point this out, you know, and, and we've got uh, 92 employees and we just had to furlough 40 and Shazam, the city's running fine. But no, when, when the city manager gets upset, when me and a few others point out uh, some of the expansion that he's talking about right now, they, it's like we're the evil idiots. And the reality is, this is just a small microcosm of what's going on on a large scale that is overwhelming us. I, I think that I think one important thing, Adam, and I don't know how much you guys have done this, but one of the most important aspects of this whole discussion is the way that the these government this government spending is where they say, well, you know, we need good employees. Oh yeah. You need your $500,000 employee, good employees, someone that can't make $500,000 in the private sector, by the way, in most cases, but um, you, you, you got to pay these people so much money because we need to attract good employees. But the reason your this pay is so high in part is because the, the, the government spending is also affecting the economies of these local communities and these States that, supposedly make it necessary to do this. That's overwhelming the American people in ways that they can, that's going to be very difficult to get out of. Right. So let's, let's cover this level of uh, government compensation versus private sector compensation and CEO compensation that the left always throws into the mix. So here, here's the deal. Uh, if you take a look at the S and P 500 over a 50 year period, you know, hardly any company is left in the S&P 500 50 years later because of creative destruction. The private sector pays larger salaries and wages because they have to bring in revenue. There's competition. They have to keep relevant. And it's very, very difficult to do that over a sustained period of time. Uh, you know, government, when's the last time that a unit of government went out of business? And right. nobody can tell me. They never go out of business. The revenues are coerced from taxpayers. You don't ever have to worry about revenues. You don't have to worry about competition. You don't produce anything and you don't go out of business. So you get paid less. And furthermore, you know, uh, you've got great job security. So all of that, you throw that into the mix, government gets paid less. Look, you've got a city manager with total compensation over 200 grand. 
four-star generals in the United States military make $178,000. Yep. We've got um, CEOs, you know, government funds about 70% of healthcare expenses in this country or is involved in about 70% of all healthcare transactions. But you've got nonprofit charitable CEOs in this country that during a three-year period we found made up to $59.1 million. See, that's... That's uh, that's outrageous. That stuff needs to be curbed. They're gaming the tax code. If you're going to have a pay package like that, then you should be a for-profit company. That's right. By the way, they're not just gaming the tax code. They're gaming the American people. I that's mean, right. now, let's. one other aspect of this, Adam, is the uh, union effect in the spending that takes place at the government level. There was a, when, during the FDR administration and for some time before that, there was a real, during the, the massive growth of the union movement in the early 19th century, there was a real push to unionize government employees, which we resisted for some time until we got to the FDR administration when it exploded. The argument being, hey, they need to be able to make fair wages too. But the reality is two, two problems with, uh, with unionization of government employees. The first one is, the salaries, as we've just talked about, have gone way beyond mere fairness, if you wanted to make that argument. But the second thing is that you have built a, 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 a voting block of millions of government employees at the federal, state, and local level who are unionized, voting in a union way, and getting the kind of compensation that is way beyond what they could get in the private sector, all based, both based on their skills and based upon comparing the, a similar job function. But, but the- oh, let's, let's cover some examples of that. So, yeah. in, you know, New York uh, City, you've got the, the uh, school district janitors that out earn the principals because of the union contract, the janitors make up to $200,000 a year. It's crazy. In Chicago, you've got tree trimmers, many of them that makes six figures over $100,000 a year. And that pales in comparison. We found tree trimmers in the city of Seattle lapping off between 130,000 up to $160,000 trimming trees in the city of Seattle. But that all pales in comparison to the lifeguards in LA County who make up to $365,000 of total compensation and that does not even include free sunscreen allowance because of the union contracts. By the way, now, now you know uh, how Baywatch could start because at that salary, you can get the most beautiful people in the world, right? Absolutely. I mean, so, it's just so, crazy. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, look, a lot of people watching, or watching and listening to the podcast today are going to remember last summer when they looked at the map of human waste on yes. the streets of San Francisco. And our auditors at openthebooks.com, we did that map. And in San Francisco, because of the union contract, the uh, self-described poop patrol, those members of the poop patrol make total compensation up to $185,000 a year. It's crazy. In fact, I think you uh, talk about, what is he called? The, uh, I, I got to flip, I wasn't planning on getting to it. Oh, who's, what do they call the guy, the Mr. Clean or something? Mr. Yeah, Clean, Muhammad Nuru. 
He was yeah. indicted by the FBI. He was making, I'm just going to go on memory, but I was, I think he was making. Um, you, you showed two sixty nine five hundred, two hundred sixty nine thousand five hundred dollars in your report. It wasn't enough. He, uh, the FBI alleges that, uh, you know, there's, there's contract and kickbacks and bribery and all kinds of different stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but look, this is uh, at the state and local level. Look, we, the people, you know, we're supposed to be the ones, as Reagan said in his farewell uh, address to the country, we're supposed to be the ones in control. The politicians, they're supposed to work for us. Reagan yeah. likened it to, uh, you know, being the driver of a car. The people are supposed to tell the car how fast to go, where to turn, and when to stop, and we need to reclaim our rights. Now, I, I'm going to tell you, <clears throat> drawing from my experience in D.C., uh, doing stuff with state legislatures and now as a city councilman, I'm going to tell you one of the big impediments to that happening is not just the people, because I think they're pretty ticked. Listen, people are going to listen, many, many people are going to listen to this podcast, and they're going to be very frustrated. And they're going to want to see change. I get questions all the time. I just had a cousin of mine uh, message me this week um, in shock about what politicians are doing on some subject. I, I get these kind of questions all the time, and then I explain to them what's really going on, and then they get even more frustrated. But in reality, they don't know what to do. What we've right. got to do, see, I'm, taking, I've got, I'm getting attacked in my city because of what I'm do, doing and saying as a city councilman. But I'm also getting a lot of positive feedback because people are like, wow, that's refreshing. The reality is we don't have many refreshing people that are pointing this out. That's where we're failing right now. We have to have well, something leadership. of a, yeah, and, but we lack it. And, right. but, but I gotta tell you, a lot of people that complain as voters, I always tell them, you're going to have to have courage, too. One, you're going to have to run. And two, be willing to be beaten up on constantly just for pointing these things out. We're, we're even barely hitting the, the tip of the iceberg in our discussion today. This thing is so deep. The reports that you have at OpenTheBooks.com that you put into Forbes um, uh, really reveal a problem that is overwhelming to fix unless you have the kind of uh, – not nonviolent, but massive protests that we're having with uh, this whole Black Lives Matter movement of people saying we've had I enough. Good, I got a good example of this, Jim. So right in our nation's capital, you got the District of Columbia, the Washington, D.C. city government. So, you know, the, Nancy Pelosi's house a couple of weeks ago just passed the bill to begin the process of giving the District of Columbia statehood. Okay, so we, we took a look at the, uh, the city payrolls in Washington, D.C., Mm -hmm. And if they actually adopted a, a, uh, a state uh, payroll scale, all of them would take a pay cut. So yeah. the mayor out earns, uh, the mayor out earns uh, every, all 50 governors. She makes yep. 230,000. Gavin Newsom in California is the highest paid governor. He makes 202. So the mayor out earns all the governors. The chief of the city council out earns all members of Congress except Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi makes 223 grand. This guy makes 210,000. Their uh, chief of police out earns the uh, secretary of, the, of Homeland Security. Uh, their uh, library chief 
out earns everybody at the Smithsonian and the National Archive. Uh, their, um, their director of parks and recreation uh, out earns the secretary of the Department of the Interior, which manages one out of every five acres of land in the country. Yeah. And their public schools chancellor makes more than Betsy DeVos in the Department of Education. That's right. I buy a huge amount, almost $100,000. Right. I mean, right. The, and, and on a population in a metro area, I don't know what the actual D.C. population is, probably in the 700s, but the metro area is about a mil, just under a million and a half people. I mean, when you look at it on a population basis and the significance of this city compared to other cities, I mean, it's outrageous what they're doing in New York and Chicago, but my goodness, this, yeah, one of the things I would always tell people is, is that uh, seven of the 10 wealthiest counties in this country surround Washington, D.C., and they're wealthy not at all because of what's happening in case of economic activity. You know, you got Verizon up in uh, Reston, Virginia. AOL was quartered there. You got a little bit of, of tech there, but a lot of that is because they're close to the government contracts that they get. It, that, that whole area thrives on government contracts. And, well, and that is not hard to manage. Because, I mean, just, yeah. just think about you're on the city council. What if your city had the nation's capital there. I mean, what right. a stimulus plan that would be. Right, exactly. And and so there there and much of the infrastructure costs that take place in the DC area are funded by the federal government, not by the city government that's there. And it's really kind of a mock uh it's, it's kind of like a mock uh, legislative uh game that they play. Because ultimately, the responsibility for the District of Columbia lay with Congress. They just kind of allow them to play legislator. And, you know, and they do some serious legislative stuff that has real implications. It's, it's not entirely a game, but it is somewhat of a game. Because, and then, yet they'll pay themselves like crazy, like you say. This is such so outrageous. You mentioned that um, uh, Muriel Bowser says, the mayor of uh, of Washington, D.C., claims a $1.5 billion deficit, you say in your report, but they were asking Congress for a $3.15 billion bailout. One, forget the bailout. Manage your own finances. But two, to double up, more than double up on what your actual needs are, this is a scam. And I told people on this, back to the $2.3 trillion CARES Act, I told people, uh, what we're going to do if we pass this, which we did do, is we're going to take $2.3 trillion out of the economy. We're going to give it to government officials who are going to decide how to put it right back into the economy. Now, people will argue, well, we're doing that all in debt. Well, I mean, where does that debt come from? More than 60% of our debt, I think in almost 75% of our debt is funded by uh, debt that is bought by Americans. The rest of it is uh, other other types of people uh, outside of the country, but that's that's a uh, two point two trillion dollars of debt that could have been used for productive activity in the economy. Here, we take this money out of the economy, give it to bureaucratic-minded politicians, and then give it back to people the way that they think is best. That's the scam that's going on here. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna need a lot more entrepreneurs in this country. We're gonna need a lot more workers in this country. We're gonna need economic growth on steroids because we've got to grow our way out of our national debt. And look, yeah. we uh, 
We have the smartest people, most hardest working people in the, in, the, in the history of the world right here in America. This is the great American experiment. Our backs aren't up against the wall, but we can get this done with the right public policy. And by concentrating on building the, rebuilding this country and making our nation an economic powerhouse again, uh, you know, the, uh, the future can be bright. I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic about the future, but we've got to get the policy right. And it starts on the levels of spending. Well, let's think about this for just a moment, uh, just to kind of build on that point. I believe uh, Grover Norquist's organization, Americans for Tax Reform, calculates every year Tax Freedom Day. That day typically used to fall in the beginning of April. It's now kind of falling right near the beginning of May. I mean, what that means is that the average American works until almost May to pay all the taxes that they have to pay, federal, state, local, sales taxes, income taxes, all those different types of taxes. We're literally doing 40% or somewhere around 40% of our productive activity net-net is spent paying taxes. We've gone through so far today some of the excesses of government that we could spend five hours talking about. And the government is so out of control and it's taking the productive capacity instead of energies that really matter. Well, you know, and, it, and I think it's even, it's all of what you've said, and it's always just a little bit worse. So our organization at OpenTheBooks.com, we did an oversight report back in 2017 uh, on the eight colleges of the Ivy League that over a six-year period, they took $42 billion worth of direct payments, tax subsidies, and special tax breaks from every level of government in this country, federal, state, and local. And, and uh, we compared the eight schools on the amount of student tuition they brought in, which was about $22 billion over a six-year period, versus the amount of federal contracts and grants that they procured over that six-year period at $25 billion. We showed that the Ivy League is now more federal contractor than they are educator. And Jim, many of the grants just will make taxpayers' heads explode. For instance, Cornell University with this massive endowment, you know, the Ivies have $140 billion in the bank. In their Every endowment. one of them has billions of dollars individually in their endowments right now. So Cornell took a million dollars on a study where it hurts the most to be stung by a bee. Amazing. It took nearly $6 million to create fake voicemails from 50 years in the future after the world's been decimated by climate change. And look, you didn't need $6 million for that. With mm -hmm. your iPhone, with the voice memo button, I mean, these, these, uh, these voice memos were, were crappy. Um, anybody, any teenager could have recreated that climate change um, study or climate change game just with, a, with, with, a, with an iPhone, 700 bucks. Yeah. And by the way, uh, where is it worse to get stung by a bee? Well, the, the physiology's <laughs> well, but by the way, you didn't need the study. The physiology is very clear. We already know where the greatest concentration of nerve endings are at various aspects of the body. I mean, it's just crazy. Be surprised. I read the study, Jim. It's actually the nostril, you know, the, uh, the idiot doing the uh, study, actually, he stung himself everywhere. And he decided that it was the nostril. 
our million dollars. And he was wrong because the physiology <laughs> says that there are other parts of the body that you can't talk about in polite conversation. They have far more nerve endings than inside your nostril. But anyway, it's just, yeah, this is a crazy, it's kind of like the old uh, uh, shrimp on the treadmill study, you know, that Tom Coburn always talked about and, and things like that. But the, the effects are real because this is money that is taken out of the hands of the American people, which could be used by for productive activity, for growing a business, for spending money at businesses, and and we take so it like, away. You and know, you, Nancy, yeah. Nancy the florist and Sam the hardware man, they were all yeah. taxed. So NASA could give a million bucks to prepare the nation's religion for the discovery of extraterrestrial life. Yeah, crazy. And, and by the way, speaking of Nancy Pelosi, one of the the best ideas on dealing with this self-imposed uh, financial crisis after coronavirus, because it was all because of government shutdowns, um, is the best idea that's out there, and it may not be absolutely perfect, but it's a pretty darn good one, is Larry Kudlow pushing very hard for a payroll tax holiday until the end of the year. You think Nancy Pelosi's going to do that? No, she's going to take more money from us to spend it to other people. Again, we're going to take another $2 trillion out of the economy. We're going to give it to politicians so that they can decide how to put it right back into the economy. And that process is not only highly inefficient, because all the wrong decisions are made about where to put the money back into the economy. But it's also corrupt because part of that $2 trillion goes into some government bureaucrats' hands, some uh, the hands of the National Endowment for the Arts or the John F. Kennedy Center, like in the, last, in the CARES Act. It goes to places where people get paid off for political privilege. And, and that is why we have to get control of this government because we are giving politicians what they need to maintain their power base instead of what Americans need to build the base of their lives. That is a basic economic problem that we have with all this. And, you know, members of Congress believe, uh, and Tom Coburn, you know, repeatedly told me this when he was alive, he passed away in March. So the legendary center, he's Senator always used to say that these guys believe that their fastest ticket to reelection and their own personal political power is to spend our money. And yeah. that, that we have to insist that's not the reason why we're sending these people there. We need, no. to, we need to scale back the pay perquisites and pension benefits for members of Congress so it's a part-time, uh, you know, so they don't make a career out of this. So they don't ensconce themselves using our money to stay there forever. Yeah. By the way, there's something else that you study, and, and I don't think we have time to get into it on the podcast today, but you do talk about how the largesse in what are normally termed nonprofit organizations, what I term not-for-profit organizations, which because, well, you know, if you've got a charity that you set up and you want the tax advantage of a 501c3, well, you better make a profit or else don't even file for 501c3 because that that is all about not getting taxed on your excess revenue for the year. But 
so many of these organizations, and you, you named quite a few of them. One of them you didn't name in your Forbes article uh, was the Red Cross, where, you know, the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Some of these nonprofit organizations, these people are making hundreds of thousands of dollars in salaries, literally multiple hundreds of thousands. Some, Sometimes some taking yeah, exactly. Sometimes yeah. taking taking government money, you know, in in terms of in Catholic charities, I mean, I, they make tens of percent uh, through federal contributions that come their way. Although they're they're a pretty good organization compared to others, but some of these it it, it gets outrageous. But but let me point to this: um, we could be. It is wrong some of the money they're taking. Everyone should go to Charity Navigator for any charity that you want or to your organization, openthebooks.com and make sure that they understand what the salaries of these people, the 990 forms that are filed with the IRS expose a lot of this. But what I'm really concerned about even more uh, is, is that these organizations quite often um, uh, or, or, or charity in general is really a monopoly of the federal government because we talk about a few billion dollars that come to some of these organizations, we forget the hundreds of billions that we're spending in charitable activity through the federal government. That becomes a real problem too. Well, that's right. We just took a look at 501c3 public charities dialed into the 2019 federal checkbook. And we found that the, the uh, organization that used to be known as Maraza, they changed their name to Unidosis, uh, I believe, uh, they took $5 million out of health and human services last year. Uh, they, on their website, described themselves as a Latino advocacy organization. Now, advocacy, as you know, Jim, that's not a charitable uh, endeavor. You've got to be an educational institution. Advocacy is something different. You don't get a tax deduction for a donation. It's a 501c4 organization. Yeah. The taxpayers are funding the La Raza organization to the tune of $5 million a year. And look, we also identified just, you know, straight up food bank charities. You know, during this pandemic, when people have real needs, there's a lot of tens of uh, millions of people are unemployed. Uh, the food bank lines are around the block. Donations are up significantly to food banks. We wanted to know ahead of the pandemic how much their executives were pulling down in, in, in cash compensation. And we found food bank charities in this country where their CEOs were making up to $1 million a year. The top food bank in New York City, their CEO made over $500,000 a year last year. And I just want to reiterate again, a four-star general, a very unique an accomplished person in the United States military makes 278 grand a year. There is no excuse for this kind of camp cash compensation in our public charities. It, th this is a corruption that is embedded into our nation, mostly through government efforts, but even through ways that we treat these people when they, um, on, in a private sector basis. It's a very big concern. If we do not change the trajectory that we're on, we're going to be in major trouble in this country. I, I'm frankly very concerned that we might have passed the Rubicon by now and we can't draw it back. What? So as we get ready to wind down here, and I want to be respectful of your time, what, name me three or four things that we should be doing right now 
to change this trajectory that, that, are, that are things that we can actually begin chewing on right now. You know, you can't eat the whole elephant. You got to go one bite at a time. What are some of those initial things that we need to start doing right now? I think just as a general principle, any executive elected, whether you're the mayor, whether you're a governor, whether you're the president of the United States, you gotta embrace the transparency revolution and declare war on waste. Go line by line through how your organization spends money and, and you need to cut all waste, fraud, corruption, malfeasance, duplication. You need to carve that out of your budget. Government budgets are rife with misspending, whether it's been townships in Illinois or state governments like in California or the national government or any federal agency that we've ever investigated, we've never, not one single time, found a unit of government running well. So that's where we start. You know, publicly elected executives in this country have got to get serious on how they're spending and actually start respecting taxpayers. What else do we need to do? What 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 are some of the things? Because I think the transparency piece, the transparency piece is huge. Now we got to take steps after that because people actually have to follow up on that. You know, we have a media culture right now that is largely, not entirely, but largely not interested in revealing the corruption that is there and actually perpetuating the corruption. Right. I mean, people need to raise their voice. There has to be a, a, a revolution, a transparency revolution in this country where people follow the money and hold their elected officials accountable in both parties for their tax and spend decisions. That's the accountability mechanism that the United States Constitution created when we talked about Article 1, Section 9 at the top of the podcast today. We need yeah. to take our rights as we the people were the drivers of the car, the politicians work for us, and we need to hold them accountable based on actual hard spending decisions. So whether it's in your municipal unit, in your state government, at the federal level, you know, not only do we open the books, we audit those books. And citizens need to become citizen auditors and hold people accountable. So uh, I think we've got a big challenge on our hands. I'm not, I'm not certain where we're going to go as a country right now. I still believe that there's hope. And I think if we can begin with a transparency course, because I know that I, I read your stuff regularly at openthebooks.com. And, and I know how challenging it can be for you to get the information that you reveal. It's, looks horrible what you can find but beyond that it's it, it, we really need more transparency we need the checkbooks of government agencies opened and again you know you might find five percent of federal spending possibly that really needs that that checkbook shouldn't be revealed because we do clandestine activity around the the world and i get that and i can understand that argument although any government bureaucrat's going to find a way to make more and more things uh, fall into that category but nonetheless if we get the checkbook out there i think it can really in at every level of government it can really help us fix this problem. That's what you do at Open the Books. I mean, that, that's really a critical aspect of what you perform on a day-to-day -day basis. So then you have questions and you, you simply, when you have questions, you demand answers of your elected officials. Oftentimes the demand of an answer will necessitate, you'll have to go to a public meeting and ask your question in that meeting. 
and maybe they still won't answer. You still have to network, you know, 50 to 500. Here in Illinois, at my local junior college, to get answers to my questions a couple of years ago, I had to network up to 500 people into those public meetings. But guess what? We got change. We got uh, property tax cuts. We got spending cuts. We got new leadership at the school. And so that's the result if people are serious. The only way this is going to be resolved, look, the big spenders, they're serious. And they are fat and happy, and they're having a great time on your dime. Yeah. We we need to get serious. And at OpenTheBooks.com, I can tell you, our auditors, we are serious Marines when it comes to identifying and shining that white hot spotlight on waste. So uh, as we close out, so let people know some of the new things that are coming down on OpenTheBooks.com and let people know how they can get in contact with your organization, what they need to know, and how, how they can get active in what you're doing. So on our website, the fastest way to get involved locally is just come to our website. We've got 23 million public employee salaries and pension records. Uh, you can sort it right by zip code from our homepage and take a look at all the units of government in your local area. And you can see who by name and which position makes how much last year or over the course of the last three years. So you'll have questions about that. We are also adding municipal checkbooks to that. So you'll be able to take a look at the vendors that receive the money from even your cities here in short order. And so I would just come to openthebooks.com, get started on our open data. And, uh, and when you have questions, start that process locally of asking questions and demanding answers and developing your network. I, I would love to see people all over this country start little tiny groups. By the way, one of the great things that Alexis de Tocqueville said about uh, the, the early heart of the American people was, it, and he used the term little platoons of people that really were engaged in what was happening in their local government, focused on what was taking place there, holding those people accountable, having town hall meetings and talking through things. I would love to see little platoons all across this country develop that would do exactly what you're talking about, at least starting at the municipal level and definitely at the state level. Because these you're right, they're fat and happy, these politicians. They have a sense of power. We're looking at, the, in this coronavirus uh, outbreak, we're looking at authoritarian approaches of governors and city, excuse me, city officials all over the country. They, they really want to take authoritarian control of what we're doing. This gives them an opportunity to practice, frankly. And uh, when, when in a serious situation, the coronavirus thing's very serious, but they're leveraging that into really absurd uh, efforts. But, but what people don't know is what you're seeing when they're putting out the mask orders and the closing down the, um, the, the uh, businesses orders, this is just a noticeable effect of what they're actually doing in ways that you don't see every day. And that's why this transparency is so critical because they're spending money in ways that, that are not about good government or accomplishing good things and the basic functions of government, but really payoffs to their friends. And the only way to expose this is for people to get serious and to take action to go to openthebooks.com and learn the information that you have there, which you don't have it all yet because we need more transparency around the country. 
Well, we have a lot of it. We've got about 80 cents on every dollar taxed and spent at every level of government across the whole country. Jim, last year, our auditors, we filed 41,500 Freedom of Information Act requests on nearly every single substantial public body in this entire country. So we, uh, we've created what I call the good machine. It's a Freedom of Information Act open records machine to literally reach in to most units of government in this country and, and capture and post online how they spend our money. Now let's take a look at it and hold them accountable. That's right. And it's, it's amazing work that you're doing. And there are very few organizations in this country that are putting this kind of effort. There are a lot of good government, less government organizations that are trying to move this or that. This is the meat to the bones that we haven't had. And that's why I'm very grateful, Adam and Jeffsky, for all the work that you're doing at OpenTheBooks.com. Because if we don't, continue down this path and keep expanding upon it. And it's amazing what you're doing with your regular articles in Forbes and other places where you're able to get this information out. We need to expand that and people need to go to openthebooks.com and help you out and give you guys more resources to do this fabulous work. Any last words before we uh, get done with this today? Well, more donations equal more investigations. Most of our budget goes to data capture, filing those 41,000 uh, open records requests, and we have built the world's largest private database of government spending ever, ever in the history of the world. So we're proud of the efforts, and uh, and we need to we need to open the books and then audit them and hold them accountable. And together, all of us can lock arms and hold the political class accountable. It's what we need to do. That's exactly right. And Adam Andrzejewski, the CEO of OpenTheBooks.com, I really appreciate you coming on the Against Nice podcast. Our goal here, we're, we're not about being nice. We are about, and we're not about being rude and mean either, but we are about exposing what's taking place there. And that requires specific effort. You're doing exactly the kind of effort through OpenTheBooks.com that we're trying to do on this podcast by having the people that are showing by example how we can get back to something better in this society because we've really gotten off the rails and I'm grateful for the work you're doing. Adam, thanks so much today and I appreciate you taking some time to be with us on the podcast. Thank you, Jim. It's been great being here and you're exactly right. Public policy and politics, it ain't beanball. We, no. can, uh, we can hold them accountable. We can do it with a smile, but we have to do it on a serious basis. There's no doubt about it. And uh, Adam Andrzejewski, CEO of OpenTheBooks.com. Thanks for being on Against Nice today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. Please be sure to go to our website, www.politicsisntnice.com. You can sign up for our email list there just at the top right of the webpage. And make sure to follow us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or even the iHeartRadio app. And give us a five-star rating and let people know what you think about our podcast. Again, www dot politics isn't nice.com join our email list at the top right hand of the page there and follow us on itunes spotify stitcher or iHeartRadio. thanks for joining the show today we'll be back soon